Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books. And check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. When we're thinking about this kind of advocacy, we work on two streams, if you will. The first is the kind of advocacy that we can all do. How is it that we can live our lives better? What information do we need in order to help our own selves, our families, our friends, and our local communities? And then there's the other kind of advocacy where we may need to persuade somebody. So, you know, changing the mind of the federal government is an example of it. That was Laura Watts, founder and CEO of CanAge an organization that works to improve the lives of seniors through advocacy, policy, and community engagement. Laura has experience in defending the rights and dignity of older people as a lawyer. And in this episode, we discuss the impact of CanAge, her newest book, The 3 AM Guide to Your Aging Parents, and some exemplar innovations from around the globe. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So you are the founder and CEO of CanAge, which is Canada's national seniors advocacy organization. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what CanAge does? CanAge is a national or pan-Canadian not-for-profit organization which works to advance the rights and well-being of all Canadians as we age. So it's not just a seniors organization. I think of it as an aging organization. We are not partisan, but we're certainly political in that we're trying to make positive change. And when we're thinking about this kind of advocacy, we work on two streams, if you will. The first is the kind of advocacy that we can all do. How is it that we can live our lives better? What information do we need in order to help our own selves, our families, our friends, and our local communities? And then there's the other kind of advocacy where we may need to persuade somebody. So, you know, changing the mind of the federal government is an example of it. And, you know, that we need that big collective clap, that big collective voice to persuade and uh, and push whatever issues we think are urgent and try to get that change. So that's what CanAge does. We're all across the country with our head offices at U of T. And what are some of the topics that you typically you know work on? We have a roadmap to an age-inclusive Canada, which has been really accepted across the country. And it's a really practical way to talk about what it is that we need to do in Canada to improve things. And we call it the Voices of Canada's Seniors. And so each of those letters stands for something. So V is violence and abuse prevention. That's where we talk about things like elder abuse, fraud, and, uh, and exploitation, what we can do to stop and prevent that or if we have it, respond to it. We think about O as optimal health and well-being. So this is certainly where we talk about things like dementia or you know eyes and ears and hearts and COPD and all of the things that are happening to individuals, but also about systems. When we talk about our healthcare systems, they all fit into that space. I is infection prevention and disaster response. And boy, we've never talked more about infection prevention as we have in the last couple of years. 
we also think about disasters. And so certainly the pandemic was a disaster, but this is also where we talk about things like the fires that are burning right now across the country or flooding, or what is it we need to do to prepare ourselves for climate emergency changes, which by the way, affects older people more than any other group. C is that whole health and housing continuum. We didn't put it under health for a reason because we think you know it's about where a person lives and what they need to stay there. So that's caregiving, that's also home care. And then as we're thinking about it, it's also kind of hospitalized care if needed, but thinking about all of the different types of supports that housing has, including just you know living in your own home healthily and well. E is economic security. And boy, with that, now another bump by the Bank of Canada, 10 bumps in 10 uh, months, pretty much. We are knowing really what it feels to have a bit of an economic squeeze on it. And for so many people, they're really trying to wrestle with what does it mean to be economically secure across the life course, but also in their later life and how much do they need and how they're going to get it and what are concerns that they're having to overcome. And then last but not least, and I think probably most importantly, is social inclusion. And I say most importantly, because if we're excluded from all of the other things, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and so when we're thinking about social inclusion, we're thinking about things like transportation, loneliness, activities and communities, but also things that are structural like ageism. And then if you go to our Voices of Canada Seniors, you'll see those six things and you can open those up by double clicking in each of those letters and you'll see 40 issues and 135 recommendations. And right now we're excited because that has got about a three-year horizon. So we're just refreshing it so in October, we'll be uh, launching some some new key issues and recommendations. Amazing. And, you know, that's such a comprehensive list. So there's tons of things that Canage is doing. We, in this podcast, really talk about palliative care and not just at end of life, but all throughout the illness journey and really sort of, you know, touching on some of the topics like patient advocacy and caregiver experience, et cetera. So I'm curious, um, how CanH connects with this broader idea of palliative care. Yeah, it's so critically important. I mean, first of all, we're supportive of enhanced palliative care services. We are, in this country, incredibly short of decent palliative care services. And if you're outside one of the five big cities, your chances of getting decent palliative care plummet. And as we know, Canadians often live in you know, moderate size or rural communities with the exception of these few clusters that we have. We think that palliative care is part of home care, is part of health care, is part of social inclusion and wellness care. So the way that we consider palliative care and, and I'll, hospice is a, a function part of, of that broader palliative journey is involved with both you know, patient choice, but also understanding that those that are supporting folks who are in palliation or should be able to get palliative services need help and support too. And, and that's not just you know, a medical support or flipping a switch or even trying to find housing for somebody who's from out of town trying to help somebody in that palliative care. It's also thinking about things like caregiving leaves. It's thinking about our social care models and do we have enough counseling and social services to help people understand the emotions. It's thinking about things like, are we choosing palliative care for the 
reasons that make sense to the person or do they have a full understanding of what services should be made available to them as well? So part of it is also thinking through that navigation and that journey to make sure that people aren't making choices uh, with only a few limited options in front of them. We really do think that it's important that people have their destiny in their hand, but in order to have their destiny in their hand, we need to make sure that the services are there so that they have the full range of well-being, whether that be physical or social well-being frameworks and supports for them. Yeah. And it's not just access to full services, but also having full information. It sounds like a lot of the people, a lot of, you know, your organization's target audience is seniors themselves or people, you know, are caring for seniors. And I wonder if you've seen a change in the activation of the population to really be asked more questions, to be more uh, forward rather than sort of hope that the system has got your back. But you know that I guess like I wonder if there's been a change in the years that we have to become more like advocates and and demand what we want. I, I'm just curious what your perspective is. So the answer is simply yes and no. As what I hear from boomers in particular, and this is very generational, I hear boomers say, you know, we're not going to accept things as it used to be. We're not, you know, we're always been a generation of change makers. And by the way, I'm not a boomer. I'm a Gen Xer. So I can, I can take a step back and see. <laughs> and my parents aren't boomers either. They're greatest generation. So I, I'm looking at this from a, you know, a couple of steps back, but there is a real narrative around them being change makers and being sort of revolutionaries in terms of social change. And, and that we're reconfiguring what aging means. We're reconfiguring out what the third part of your life means and so on to which I say, absolutely. The narrative is completely there. Yes. The problem, and this is the no bit, the problem is it's really hard to create services fast. And many boomers have never uh, fully experienced being othered. Now, I'm not saying about people who haven't experienced intersectional othering or marginalization. And so absolutely. Let me take you back to, and this is in Ontario specifically, but you know, whatever jurisdiction you're in, you'll have heard some version of this as well. At the beginning of the pandemic in Ontario, the premier said, we're going to put an iron ring around our seniors. And that means everyone 70 or over is going to be essentially kept safe, locked up at home, wherever home means. And my very first thought was, oh, We'll see how this works, because I think many people who are 70 years old never had any conception that they would be considered a senior, let alone vulnerable. But the reality is our services are so short and the pressures are so increasing that I kind of wince when I hear the boomer narrative that everything is going to be different for us. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not. It takes 25 years to create a geriatrician. We're cranking out, you know, plastic surgeons, but we have a threat, 302 geriatricians in the entire country with an average age of late fifties to early sixties and not more coming, let alone, you know, not creating structures and infrastructures. I think that same group of people was also really shocked at the notion of triage for the first time. You know, I remember the first person that called me and it was in March, 2020, and they just found out that they would not be getting a ventilator based on age, not their well-being, not their attitude, not their, you know, preference in rock music, just their age. And I said, yeah, that's not new. 
it just had never applied to them. So I think the narrative, the social narrative is changing. I think the infrastructure is not. Mm-hmm. And, and is a lot of your advocacy or, or conversations, is it always just about more money and for more people? Like what are things, you know, because the revolution is really about what can we do? What can we do as citizens, patients, families, seniors, potentially, or or, you know, the the same generation who's caring for seniors, potentially, um, what can we do right away that can make a difference that isn't only about structural policy change? So most of what we do is about what we can do ourselves, because structural policy change, once you identify it, and if you make people care about it, frankly, follows. People say, oh, there's no money. Oh, there's always money. There's always money for what you care about, Right. So you just have to make sure that people care about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, when we think across that voices framework, you know, when we're thinking about each one of those pieces, you know, the majority of it are issues that we can do ourselves. So is it about creating a community organization so that people have a chance to connect? Yeah. Is it about what you can do walking? And the fact that actually getting up and having 30 minutes of exercise three times a week can massively change your health and well-being, right? Even if you do it in five-minute intervals. Most people don't think that. They think it's all or nothing. You have to go to the gym. Like you have mm. to do it. No, you can just do little bits and things. Is it about destigmatizing age so that you don't self-identify both as ages to other people? But we've, we've all done that, right? Oh, I'm too old for that. Well, really? Like, where, where does that come from, right? Like, mm. help us think about what that comes from. When we think about just what we've done in terms of vaccine awareness, right? Just the uptake for the very first time, Canada started caring about adult vaccinations. A big piece of what we do at CanAge is to focus on adult vaccinations. That just, that's not that hard. At the individual level, it's like, go get your vaccine. At the structural level, we're pushing so that there's more vaccine coverage. You don't have to pay as much, that you can get it easier. And so I would offer just about every single issue you can come up with, there's a big chunk of it of stuff that you can do yourself. Love it. Love it. And we, and you know, as you know, we have written a book called Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, which is really trying to be a guidebook that explains what patients and families can do to get you know, the most out of their experience to get ahead of some of the curveballs. But I know during this time, you've also written a book called The 3 a.m. Guide to Your Aging Parents, Anxiety-Free <laughs> Answers to the Elder Care Questions That Keep You Up at Night. So I love that title. Um, tell us about you know what made you want to write a book with your busy job. Oh, why does anyone write a book? You know, I think it's because there were so many, you know, a caregiver journey, right? One Mm -hmm. woman's supportive dementia. That's really important. Those stories are really important, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not ubiquitous and they're not funny. (laughs) There's lots of books about, you know, medical journeys. And, and again, they're either touching or important or whatever, but I wanted something that was very much, okay, if you get me or one of my friends in the living room with maybe a glass of wine or a beverage of your choice, and you said, my mom is calling me at 3 a.m. because someone's stealing the bananas, we can actually help that, you know what, you're not stealing bananas, but I can tell you why it's all about the bananas. It's always bananas, right? And (laughs) what does that look like? And why are we talking about that? Or how do you actually navigate really hard conversations? 
how do you deal with what powers of attorney are or aren't? How do you deal with, you know, mom love me best, like in a practical, funny way with different approaches? So there's actually like little scripts in it about, you know, here's this approach. You can try this way or that way. And it's written not actually for the older person, although across generations, they may be older people reading it. It's about, you know, folks like us who are trying to navigate their way through, you know, their aging parents. And the irony is sometimes that's people in their seventies navigating for people who are in their mid nineties. Sometimes that's people in their thirties navigating for people in their sixties, but it's not for necessarily the older person. But what I would offer is when you read it, you're like, Oh, that's, that's handy for me too. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, the reality is, you know, this idea of caring, caregiving, uh, being a carer can happen at any age. And the same thing with, you know, when we might uh, succumb to an illness, uh, at which, you know, might ebb and flow, but uh, could be at any age too. So it really is interesting. What are some of the topics that you talk about in this, in this book that I'm, I'm so curious? We've, we've really focused on the stuff that you get stuck on. So does my parent need help around the house? Is it time for them to move into some type of, you know, congregate? That could be like just a, a building with other people in it, or it could be, you know, the, the eternal long-term care question. Um, what does downsizing of possessions look like? What does denial about aging look like? Uh, how do you manage if your families are arguing about powers of attorneys? <laughs> what do you do about it? What about things like scams and frauds? What about safe sex or frankly, any kind of sex, divorce, grief? What about, you've got toxic parents that you hate. What are you supposed to do with them? Are, you know, are you supposed to be taking care of them? Like, what if you don't like your parents? Um, how do you navigate things like meds reviews or addictions or hearing aids or divorce? So it's all of that really good stuff, but it's done in a way that isn't overwhelming. And I'm hoping it's funny and practical at the same time. Oh, I'm looking forward to, to reading it. And I think uh, there's, you know, there'll be lots of people who who want to read these, you know, the funny stories, which, you know, told in your voice, but uh, but very practical questions. And that's such a gamut, you know, people think it's all about the medical stuff, but there's so many social practical things that you don't even realize uh, that you're going to encounter as you sort of go through any sort of uh caregiving journey or you know as you age there's so many things that happen in, in the life cycle and it's just so hidden it is and just building on that I mean the, there are so many stereotypes right I'm supposed to love my mother well you know, actually what if, I, I do love my mother by the way she's fantastic but you know what if you don't love your mother you know actually or what if your stepfather is a jerk like what if you cannot bear you know the unsuccessful son in the basement who you're pretty sure is taking your mom's pension checks. Um, how do you manage the fact that, you know, your dad likes his cocktail starting at two o'clock and really you can't call after three, right? Like these are the realities, not some type of idealized version. And I always figure, you know, this is actually the fun stuff about real people. It, it's not this um, you know, angelic person with this other angelic person in there. 
old hands clasping new hands going through these journeys. You know, it's the messiness of real people and how do you get through? Uh, you know what? The, the, the topics that are, you're talking about are so varied that I, and I makes me think of CanAge and all the partnerships you have because it's not disease specific. So many, you know, you could partner with many disease group organizations, community organizations, um, you know, aging organizations. So I'm so curious how, what is your work to build these coalitions and to, you know, who do you typically partner with? Like all organizations, we've got our mission, vision, and values, and it's all the stuff that you'd expect. We're hoping, you know, to help all Canadians, you know, live their best lives as they age and support people across that. But when we set up the organization, we were also able to put our own values into it and our secret values. They're not on the website, but the secret values are this, be useful and be nice. And that's it. So we have a role, an obligation we've set amongst ourselves that we don't work alone. So if you're actually, you know, trying to lead, but there's no one with you, you're just taking a walk by yourself, right? And so that has taken us to, you know, partner with everything from academic institutes. We have, we have relationships with most aging institutes across the country to, really rich relationships with pension organizations, deep relationships with everything from, you know, insurance uh, organizations who are trying to understand what those rules are, consumer issues, all the way through, of course, the Alzheimer's organizations and other disease organizations. We're working with rare diseases and aging. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're bringing up a a good support for a coalition against ageism in Canada. And we try to represent some of these narratives at the global level too, right? So we try to help to escalate that and try to make sure that we're working towards a, a fairer future for all people, including working towards a UN declaration uh, for the rights of older persons. So we think of it as a, a down, up, up, down approach, right? We're really trying to think of it as a generative type of issue, but we work closely with organizations and their members and then individual people are members too. It doesn't cost anything. That's an on-purpose thing. We did not want a credit card or a financial barrier to self-advocacy or to joining in in systems advocacy. So all you got to do is send us an email and you can be an individual member. That was on-person. Really, really important for us to have a non-barriered approach. Oh, I love that approach. I mean, it makes CanH one of the best groups to collaborate with from a systems change level. But you know, Laura, I'm curious, you also deal with the public directly and wonder how you approach what you do at a policy level with the other side, which is supporting people at an individual level. I mean, what does that look like? I find it's really important to start off by asking a person to tell me their story. I don't mean that in a facile way. Because often the issues that they're coming out with, whether it be they're writing a letter or they're angry in media or they're, you know, calling up a person or they're trying to share their experience in whatever way, often the words they're using or how they're identifying their issue is not actually the issue, right? And so I usually just ask people to not worry about the time, which is a very precious thing to be able to say in our life, right? Don't worry about the time. Just tell me what's going on. And don't, don't, don't worry about trying to keep it in the right order. And don't worry about trying to use, you know, fancy language, just, you know, what's going on with you. And we have shaped 
our narratives so that we can come to say professionals with one five minute issue or something like that. Well, that's not how we live. That's not what people are. And so just really listening. And I usually tell people, if you can find somebody to listen to you or, you know, listen with you and you'll tease out a lot of issues. So the issue that you present with, you know, I'm a caregiver and I'm really tired. Uh, it's for sure. Like, I don't have any doubt that that's actually really true, but you know, t- tell me about that. Okay. So now un- un- unpeeling that away and I'm seeing that there's a transportation barrier. I'm seeing that there's a linguistic barrier. I'm seeing that there's actually a, a white coat syndrome barrier, right? That, um, I'm seeing that there's a fear of numbers in there and, you know, there's all kinds of buried stuff and trying to reduce it to a disease state right away, I think um, stops us from getting real change. And I think that also we, you know, we pile up so much in ourselves that most people don't have a social worker or a counselor or someone to just kind of talk to about this stuff. But this isn't just talking to it in the sense of, you know, feeling better about getting it all out. I think that's really important, by the way. And that's the thing that we should have covered, by the way, in our healthcare system. But it's also unpacking what some of the issues are. And I think once you unpack them, you can prioritize them. And then how do you take it from there to offer support? But also think about all the things you're doing at the provincial or national level for systems change. One of the most powerful phrases that I think that we use at CanAge, and it's never meant in a facile fashion. It's never meant to be reductive. So we tell people, just tell us what's going on. And when they're finished, when they, like the wells kind of not quite run dry, but they're kind of sort of out of it. You know, we say something like, that's really hard. I'm really sorry. That's so hard. Because anytime they're coming to us, it's really hard. <laughs> Everyone's, and we're going through a disease issue. It's really hard. It's never easy, right? No one's at home doing jumping jacks. Like it's really hard. And I cannot tell you the number of people who just take a deep breath and settle and they've been heard and the emotions have been acknowledged and the complexity has been acknowledged. You're saying, all right. So here's what I think I heard, right? And you don't need to be a professional to do that. You can be a friend. Like you could be, a, you could just be, you know, someone that goes on a walking, you know, date with. But to learn to listen and to not try to always jump in there as we are often taught, right? Just jump in. Or don't tell someone about, yeah, I, I agree. This is bad for my mom too. No, no, stick with that person's story. I know what you're trying to do, but stick with the person's story. And then I think what we, you know, we take that empathetic individual approach organizationally too. So then I say something like, you know, if we could change a couple of things for you, what would be the most important things we could change? And some of them are very, you know, practical. If someone could watch my dad on Wednesdays between one and two, my life would get a lot better. Okay. All right. So are we looking at respite care? Are we looking at a friend? Are we looking at some financial issues? Right. And we use those issues to inform our structural stuff. Uh, Here's an example. The other day I had a person calling me and emailing me and she's been trying to raise an issue, what's called, you know, orphan life insurance policies. This is when somebody who has uh, written your life insurance policy, 
is no longer doing that. They're out of the business or they're retired or they're dead or whatever else. And some estimates say that between 20 and 40% of life insurance policies are orphaned, which means like they're sitting around somewhere in a slush fund. So she told me about all of the many, many cases she had as an insurance person of these people that were in this situation. And I just, I did the same thing. Like I just listened. And at the end of it, I said, okay, what's the most important thing? And she said, I think we need to get the regulators on. I'm like, all right, let's email the regulators. And we have, and we have a meeting next week, right? So <laughs> I guess the other last thing I would say is, you know, do what you, do what you're going to, do what you're going to say you're going to do. People have been really let down a lot. Mm. And even if it's honoring the person for sharing the story, like sometimes I get people who've, you know, contacted everybody. I mean, really. And the problem is there's no answer, right? Or we don't have mm. a structural answer yet. And so I will say things like, can we use your story when we speak to government? Because every time we give submissions to government, we start off with stories that people have shared with us. And even if they say, Thank you. I've tried absolutely everything. I now know there's nothing to be done. Yes, you can use my story. And then we send them the thing where we give a, you know, we give a Senate hearing and we start off with their words. And that's empowering, right? So people to understand that you can take small steps that are really meaningful, but you have to hold the space as the listener and, and then help them try to identify what it is that they can take steps to do. Yeah. And in some ways, that's what we try to do in the waiting room, in the waiting room revolution with, you know, in our book and our steps to really point out the key things that we're trying to say that that encompasses a palliative approach to care, which, again, can be done at any time. Um, are you still involved with the, the Canada libraries where you're still presenting and partnering? Yeah, we we thought how important it is to get good information you know, to folks and one of the things that we started was a partnership with Toronto Public Library, which I found out is the largest public library system in the world. Pretty impressive. Amazing. And that gets picked up by, you know, libraries across the country too. And we would do these sort of monthly sessions and we're like, we'll see if anyone cares about that. Yes, people, people were watching all the time. People were able to get you know, really great information through trusted sources. And I think I think that idea of trusted sources and channels is so important. Libraries are trusted sources, but other faith groups and cultural communities and, you know, making sure that people are being spoken to with and heard from in a way that makes sense to them is critical for understanding. And again, we saw that during, you know, where vaccine hesitancy existed, if we got people to look like the people who were worried and spoke that language, both literally the language, but also the cultural understanding with cultural humility, you can answer questions and, and better understand what's going on and you can meet people where they're at. And I think that that's a big piece that libraries do. They meet people where they're at. And, and that's a piece that also CanAge, you know, really uh, espouses as well. Laura, speaking about cultural understanding, You've traveled all over the world representing CanAge. Do you have some exemplary ideas about aging well that you've seen and can share with us? One of the things I think is really interesting is a, a program in Japan hmm. where they're super, super aging. The oldest population in the world is in Japan. And it's also not a very big country, but there's lots of rural urban split in Japan. And so one of the programs that they created was essentially a care bank 
and it, you would work a certain number of hours for help. So, you know, you're, you, you do things like, I don't know, mow the lawn, uh, or you do some grocery shopping or whatever else. And that number of hours is entered into the sort of social care bank and you could withdraw from that at any time. So if you, for instance, break a leg and you need someone to help you, you can pull out from that and someone will come and do your stuff too. And as people are aging and it's a super aging population, this has been the solution, particularly where they don't have a lot of younger people or younger people around to do it. This is a really interesting formalized version of kind of community in often places where you don't know your neighbors. Things like helping each other and trying to find ways in which to demedicalize some programs, I think are going to be really important because in the end, that's not what our healthcare system is going to be around for. Yeah, I love it. Do you have any other examples around the, around the world that are doing innovative things that we could probably do here or elsewhere? Yeah, there's all kinds of really great stuff. Um, you know, one of my favorite programs is called Men's Sheds. And this program addresses in particular men's loneliness, which many people will not realize staggering, staggering percentages of older men commit suicide, right? This is actually a huge percentage of older men who commit suicide in in predominantly Western world, like I'm G20 kind of countries, I can say that about. And loneliness is the reason why. And so the Canadian version of his men's sheds program started from a person in the prairies and, you know, a widow who had like, you know, 80 bucks and a whole bunch of her husband's tools gave to one guy. And they started up a program where men would come together and they would help each other. They would create things for each other's houses. And that grew to now communities were like, we need benches, we need, you know, bird feeders, whatever else. And out of that also became intergenerational trades because we're desperate for people to go into trades. So young people are getting trained. And every single men's shed looks a little different. Some are urban, like right in the downtown cities. Some are rural. And they have, if you ever just want to see what one small social interaction can do for a person, check out the men's sheds and that's run by Help Age Canada. Another thing that's run by Help Age Canada, which I'm a huge fan of, is called the Canada Home Share Program. So just to give you a sense, in the city of Toronto, there's about 5 million empty rooms. Wow. And a lot of those empty rooms are held by older people who can't afford or don't want to move out of their own home, but also who can't get loans because they don't have any income coming in and affordability is a huge issue for everybody and so the Canada Home Share program typically matches students including graduate students with older people in exchange for something like five to seven hours a week of non-medical care walk the dog shovel the walkway what have dinner together like whatever it is and the amounts that the younger person pays is somewhere between like $400 and $700 in cities where, you know, thousands of dollars would be what it is, right? And the, the matching of that is done with a social worker. And so they actually have a social worker who helps to support. It's not just like an app, right? There's actually support. It's overwhelmingly popular. And now that's being innovated again. So they have peer-to-peer, more of a kind of a golden girl style. And we know that you know, intergenerational or multi-generational living or peer living groups in different ways is going to be critically important, both to affordability and loneliness. And that, that saves money. It doesn't cost money. 
Yeah. Wow. We these ideas are need not only to be they need to be amplified, shared. They need to be spread everywhere because you're absolutely right that all the answers are not going to just come from hospitals and you know more doctors with better training. They have we have to rethink how we're caring for each other as in communities, but also innovative ways that we can age successfully, age well, age independently. All of these things. So it's amazing, a fascinating conversation. Before we end the episode, Laura. Do you have any final advice for patients and families who are facing a serious illness? I think one of the things that's really important is to understand the personalities of the folks involved and that you're not going to change them. So if your mom hates healthcare experiences, hates it and will lie, chances of her all of a sudden becoming super meds compliant and going to every possible doctor's appointment, it's low. If you're the kind of good daughter that is taking her there and trying to organize things because you're very organized and you're very structured and you're, you know, that's going to piss you off. Okay. The chances are that's not going to, you know, get easier. It's going to get worse. Right. So I think it's really important to have a good solid look at who people are and what they like. And because there's not a lot usually they like about these journeys. So we have to try to find ways that everyone can contribute in the way that makes sense to them. And that may be including not contributing at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, my parents chose both my brother and I um, as joint powers of attorney for both personal care and for financial issues. And for folks across the country, um, a power of attorney for personal care is in Ontario one, but in BC or the Yukon, it's a representation agreement and other places, the healthcare proxy. You all know what I mean, right? Decisions about stuff. And my brother, who I love, but, you know, uses six words a year and travels for work, right? Said, uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> He's like, don't you do that for work or something? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So here's my decision. Uh, You do it, right? He's still on it. But the idea of trying to get my brother to be a guy who's going to show up at the hospital every single, no, he'll, he'll do things that make sense for him. He'll be himself, right? But so many people seem to think, oh, my children are all going to get along. All I need to do is, you know, put them all in the same document or, you know, everyone can agree because, you know, I'm in my last dying two years, so no one will get upset and everyone will just be happy to, uh, no, that's not likely. So try not to have an idealized sense of, you know, what things should be. Take should out of it and have a solid look at who folks are, what's important to them and how do we navigate around what we've got going for us. And in the same time, sometimes it shouldn't be you. Sometimes you know, maybe a, a trained professional like a financial institution or a healthcare navigator is better at it than you are. I don't cut my own hair. I don't cut my mom's hair. I'm certainly not going to be, you know, trying to do other very difficult things like her meds reviews with her. She's not going to listen to me. Yeah, I love it. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. And what I want to say is, you know, palliative care is healthcare, but palliative care is also human rights. And palliative care is social care. And what people need to think about palliative care is this is the humane approach to ensuring that people live and die with dignity and choice in as much of a pain-free environment 
as is possible. And I'm just so grateful that you guys are doing this great work. We are hugely supportive. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.